This is In Tune, the in-series podcast opening up to you your own in-series opera and more, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We're recording on September 19th to air next week this In Conversation episode. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of the In-Series. And before we get started, I just wanted to, by, by now those of you that are listening have missed or already saw Viva Verdi, which played um, in September and ended on the 23rd. Uh, but we got a wonderful review this just this morning. It was the perfect birthday present. Today's my birthday uh, for us from the DC Metro Theater Arts. And it's, it's an extremely long, uh, detailed, very well-written review, but it has a great final sentence, which I think captures the spirit of what we're trying to do in this new vision for the in-series. Uh, the writer says, in its deeply affecting entwining of two venerated masterpieces representing two divergent artistic disciplines, the in-series continues to serve as a catalyst for artistic expression, exploration, and outreach in the D.C. area, and for those so moved, inspired, or inclined to promote positive dynamic change throughout the social fabric of and touched by the theater-going community. Sounds like we could have a new mission statement. Now, the best birthday present that I could possibly have is to have my dearest friend in the world, Allison Wong, here. Allison and I have collaborated many, many times, and she's one of the artists and producers and thinkers on, on art that I respect most and who, whose opinion I really value. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that wonderful introduction. Sure, anytime. How, um, how ironic is it that we're here recording a podcast together? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> especially knowing knowing you and knowing your uh, your feelings on social media, I think it's uh, it's very impressive that you've taken this I on. I think and, you and only <laughs> taught me the word podcast a couple months ago, <laughs> and you're doing so well with it. Here I am. I'm loving it's it. It's great. I've been listening. And it's now we we spent the summer good. in um, in Mumbai, in India, making a making a Haydn opera together. Yes. How was that for you? It was. It was brilliant. It was wet. It was monsoon season. Um, but that aside, it was a wonderful experience and a great time with a great group of singers and artists. Um, and it was wonderful to get to collaborate the way that we did on that piece. It was a bit of a, a new chapter for us, I think, in our work together. Yeah, it was a new way of working together. It was certainly the highlight of the experience was collaborating with you on it and also all the conversations that we had surrounding it about art in general mm -hmm. um, while we waited for rehearsals to start in the monsoon rains. Um, and we talked a lot about, um, about opera and social media and um, came up with the idea to make a podcast. Called I Hate Opera. I Hate Opera. <laughs> 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 now I think for our listeners we might need to Describe. We're just going to have a sort of free-form conversation today mm -hmm. and see where it goes. But let's let's talk about why we want to call our podcast "I Hate Opera." What do we mean when we say? Do you do you agree with that statement? By the way, uh, absolutely. Or is that just me? Okay. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree with it. And as someone who makes opera, you know, um, obviously it's it's uh, it's not all hate. <laughs> I have a very deep love for opera, and I revere the art form. Um, and that actually is probably why I, I have this animosity towards it. Um, it's an art form that can be a beast to wrestle with 
and there is joy in that struggle um, but there are also a lot of things associated with the word opera that um, are actually outside of that artistic interaction um, I feel yeah I I mean, with humor, I love hearing myself say I hate opera, and of course the <laughs> irony that I enjoy is, of course, I feel like I love opera more than almost anyone. Um, but, but honestly, I almost never stay through the opera. I can hardly remember the last time I went to an opera and stayed for the entire performance, and I've wrestled with why that is, and I think it's a sort of sadness that wells up when what's on the stage is so far from what I wish and what I know opera can be, mm -hmm. what it, fa it rarely um, attains. Mm -hmm. um, and the disparity there is just so much that I can't bear to stay usually. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had drawn up, we had drawn up sort of sample, sample discussions. I want our leaders, our, our, our listeners, <laughs> to hear the sort of topics we were gonna have. We had I Hate Opera, and then we were gonna talk about the fetishization of opera. We were going to do an episode called Lipstick on a Pig. <laughs> um, some of these are not, are, are, I can't say on, on, the, on air, so I'll leave those <laughs> off. And the last one we were going to, we had an episode we wanted to call Smashing the Idols. What do we mean when we say lipstick on a pig? Well, I think that when we were talking about it, we were very cognizant. I mean, uh, to give some context to this conversation too, we were working on a piece um, in a city that was very excited and open to um, having opera as a part of its uh, cultural activity, um, which was very exciting for us. Um, but they were not um, approaching it with a with a, an, an ownership necessarily on the art form. Um, and that comes with some assumptions about what the experience of the art form, is supposed to be like. And I think there was a bit of that that we were ruminating on when we were talking about this in Mumbai. Yeah, we had just done a sort of panel discussion. And we, we got this question a lot, actually, about what it meant to be doing opera in a place that had no opera, mm -hmm. as if that was a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think both of us felt that that was actually a wonderful opportunity because we had we were finally free of the weight of conventions that surround yeah. this art form more than other art forms, though all art forms have conventions, but opera in particular is sort of weighted down with a very heavy tradition that I would say has become kind of a stranglehold. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe we need to define what exactly we're talking about. When I think of conventions, I'm talking about the types of theaters we presented in, uh, the size of the orchestra, um, the the whole the whole experience for the audience from the point of entry to the point of exit the these etiquette. sort of yeah these strange um, rituals of etiquette that yeah. no one understands and actually which have no bearing at all on the artistic experience anymore mm -hmm. and even and and of course I harp on this a lot but even the way we approach our body of work our canon as opposed to the way theater practitioners um, approach their canon I mean we are we treat ours as if it came down from God straight to Moses on the mountain <laughs> and there were the De Ponte operas. God forbid we should touch them. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the sort of tradition that they don't have in India. So we kept getting that question and actually I think both of us agreed that it was this amazing opportunity. Yeah, it was fantastic. To be, to be 
uh, able to, to reinvent the operatic experience from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, and not have to put the lipstick on the pig. Not have to put lipstick <laughs> on the pig. And actually, another thing when I, th- I think of when I hear lipstick on a pig is I'm so tired of the way opera companies market their productions. Mm. Um, a lot of money goes into very flashy, dare I say, sexy um, packaging. And what, yet when you go into the theater, it's almost always just a variation at best on the same experience that somehow got codified around 1850. Right. And that has been the operatic experience, so much so that people think that that is the operatic experience, forgetting there's 200 years of tradition before that of presenting opera in different ways. Yeah. And there's almost a a level of of deceit because I think we know what people are craving in terms of storytelling, and we try to reflect that in the marketing but we haven't actually integrated that level of process in the making of the opera. It's actually really said, really well said. I've never thought about it that way. It is. Um, it has such intention behind it that it's almost possible to assa- assign blame. <laughs> I hesitate to say that, but I think we have to say that. We clearly know by the way we market productions um, and the way we make the, uh, the surface appearance of the production look, what audiences crave in terms of the, the directness of the experience, and yet we hold our, our rituals and our, our canon in such high regard that mm-hmm. we refuse to give audiences what, they're, what they really want to have a true, authentic, emotional experience. What about the fetishization of opera? Well, there is this idea that opera is uh, is you know a, a, the unicorn of the art forms. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> you know, it's this it's this spectacular thing that is magical to be a part of, and and that's not to say that it's not. You know, as someone who who makes opera, that experience is fantastic but you are often confronted with these conversations where people become you know wide-eyed in disbelief oh you make opera <laughs> like yeah, as, as if i've told as them if that you were i were a sorceress yeah as if i've you know or i've i've caught a unicorn and i have it at home in the backyard you know <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's a shame when that happens I feel because I I feel like I've become immediately removed from reality in that conversation. I've once I've said the word opera, I'm no longer relatable, and I have to actually draw myself back in and and put myself back into the reference of the conversation that I'm having, and that has nothing to do with the work that I've done. Actually, it has to do with this preconceived notion of what opera is. Yeah, I think it's kind of ironic that what we're talking about is a sort of tokenizing Mm -hmm. of an art form that more than any other art form tends to tokenize (laughs) people of diverse (laughs) races and different genders too. I mean, but when you have conversations even with other arts organizations, opera is a sort of, is, is a sort of token in the sense that they they love our trappings but actually have no understanding Mm -hmm. 
of what we do. And, and we made that. Yes. We spent hundreds of years mystifying opera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now it, people don't understand what it is at all. And I think we don't either. I think um, big we have sort of confused the bottle for the wine. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Except wine gets better with <laughs> age in the bottle, and I'm not sure the opera does. Um, let's, let's, let's dig into some of the meaty stuff that we talked about this summer. Um, what do we do with the... What do we do with the problem that our casts lack diversity? That our repertoire has a lot of problematic pieces in it that um, at the very least represent cultural appropriation. And, and e- even if you don't buy into the, the notion of cultural appropriation, pieces like Butterfly or the Pearl Fishers um, have, have, have a lot of issues. What, as an art form, do we do? Do we just not do those pieces? I, I realize we just jumped in the deep end. I mean, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Do, let's just jump right in there. Um, I mean, a big part of my own personal belief about that is how precious do you treat the canon? Um, and it speaks to what you said about looking at these pieces and being so afraid to to think about them in in new ways um and if we want to say that these works are timeless then we have to absolutely throw them against what we are experiencing in our time So to say that you know, we're going to ignore the issues with the works and continue to do them anyway as we have been isn't, isn't an option for me as an opera maker. Um, and for, for other people working with the art form, um, you know, there's a there needs to be a, a consideration, I think, about that um, and how that affects your process. I think ultimately it comes down to your process as an artist, because otherwise you're ignoring these factors. And audiences aren't stupid, are they? They are not. I think they get when they go see a production of the Magic Flute if it just skirts around the issues of uh, racial and gender injustice in the piece, mm-hmm. they, they get that, even if they aren't articulating that. Um, a blasé attitude towards a piece which one should never feel blasé about must come from the sort of surface reading that almost all opera companies give the piece. Um, I think you've heard me tell this. I, I got in a sort of Facebook fight a couple years ago when the Seattle Opera put put um, up a video of the scene in the Magic Flute where um, Monostatos and the slaves go off stage and those slaves have to very quickly change costume to become the uh, priests for the finale where they're revealed in the Hall of Zarastro. And this was a video taken from the wings 
And so you saw a bunch of slaves in blue face run off the stage, rip, get their blue face makeup washed off, change into priest costumes, run back on stage. There's a little timer. They did it in under two minutes. Um, and it's great to show praise to the dressers and the wardrobe people that did this. But nobody mentioned that we're going from the single most racist scene in opera to the most misogynistic scene in opera. And all this company's done to deal with it is paint their faces blue instead of black. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, all, it's almost criminal, criminal to... Yeah to not have dealt with the issue, and let alone a colossal waste of the community's money and, and time to, to have an opportunity to talk about these issues which are you know, deeply relevant today, mm -hmm. um, and instead just to paint them like Smurfs and hope nobody notices. Uh, and that's, that tends to be what opera companies do with pieces like this. And where do you think that comes from, though? Is I think that's kind of at the heart of the issue. Why? why choose to approach the issues with that attitude you knew, you mean by not approaching the issues yeah i don't know i think the common wisdom i think people would say it's because we're afraid of of tipping the boat and and we don't want to offend but i don't actually think that that's the reason i think again i think it goes back to a, a precious the precious way we hold our canon mm -hmm. that to we don't think that Mozart with the magic flute was, certainly he wasn't trying to, to push any buttons, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Mozart is, is nothing if not a button exactly. pusher. Um, but we made 1850s, I mean, Verdi's a great example because Verdi, of course, is the voice of revolution. It is the resurgimento. Mm -hmm. And yet the way in which Verdi, the individual, not just the, the era, the way Verdi himself produced opera became codified as the way we produce opera, and opera as a bourgeois yeah. pastime. So it shouldn't be too offensive or too strong or too anything. Um, and the irony is that, of course, it was opera for Verdi was bourgeois only because voicing public outcry was forbidden. So going to to this bourgeois art form and shouting Viva Verdi at the end was, wasn't bourgeois at all, it was subversive. Mm -hmm. But now we go to the opera and we yell bravo and um, God forbid it should actually say anything. Yeah. And I mean, Butterfly is a good example. Butterfly is a piece we've done together. Mm -hmm. um, how do we, I mean, can, can you actually talk, you and I had a conversation this summer, I, I wonder if you'd share it with our listeners about your experience of Butterfly which is a piece you love deeply, and um, you're you're of Chinese descent. Mm -hmm. Yes, of Asian for descent. <laughs> for the listeners, I'm uh, Chinese and Scottish, born in Hong Kong. Yeah. Can you articulate the problem with with Madame Butterfly? Um. Well, the story is the story certainly resonates with me on a personal level, um, because you know we're talking about uh, a very intimate relationship between two people of different cultures and and all the, the different ways that that can um, that can play out um, and being someone in real life <laughs> that is, are you that real is, <laughs> that uh, has lived that story to an extent um, 
you know, that, that piece is relevant to me in a very specific way. Uh, and the story um, for me is a different relationship that, that I have uh, than the relationship that I have with the music actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Butterfly is a beautiful piece of music. And I think that there are emotional moments and uh, thematic material that is present in the music that is important and that I love to revisit. Um, but I don't know that I care to see another butterfly presented in a traditional way. Now, now that's funny because, and I've told you this at the Opera America conference, which was held this June, I was in a, a, a roundtable discussion of artistic directors from companies the same size as the In series, and there was a big debate. And, and to Opera America's credit, a lot of the conference was spent talking about issues of authenticity and diversity and inclusion. Um, and there was a big discussion about whether, what, what should we do with Butterfly? Should we just not do Butterfly? Butterfly, mm-hmm. for a lot of companies, is a cash cow, um, but it has real problems. and. Um, it's you know one thing and and um, an issue enough to have Chocho-san played uh, inauthentically, mm-hmm. but you also have um, a whole chorus of family members. I mean, all played by a community white chorus. Does that work? Um, and and the question was, do we do butterfly anymore? Do we not do it? <clears throat> and the consensus come that was come to was that. Uh, it's all right to do butterfly as long as you do a completely traditional version of it. <laughs> like, as long as you're falling into a tradition of yeah, because of then you have the excuse way, of fine. saying that you are actually just creating a, a museum piece. You have the excuse of saying I am just historically reenacting this production. <laughs> yeah, which of course has the ultimate um, thing of making what we do just mummifying a dead art form and irrelevant. Yeah. So, so <laughs> once and for all, can we have, can we have you tell us whether the problems with butterfly are solved <laughs> when you go see a traditional production? Um, I refuse to see a traditional <laughs> production, okay. so I cannot answer that question. Okay, well, I will take your non-answer <laughs> as an answer that no, that has not solved the problem. Folks, you heard it here first, you will not see a traditional <laughs> butterfly at the in series. Um, but here's what, and I will speak to the your butterfly, which actually takes some of the spectacular uh, parts of that story and puts it in the context of an experience that I can understand much better. You know, it talks about, um, it talks about dynamics between gender. It talks about dynamics um, between, in those who are vulnerable um, and mental health mm-hmm. and uh, caretakers. 
Um, and that is, that is all still in Butterfly. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you it's know. It's just hard to find underneath all the. The curiosity and orientalism. Again, the fetishization of people in an art form that fetishized itself. Which was relevant probably to Puccini and the audience that Puccini was writing to at the time, but do we need to live in that moment now? Now, I'm glad you segued into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Puccini wrote wrote an opera about... uh, uh, an American in Japan. He wrote um, based on a David Blasco play that is one of the most horrifying pieces of racial stereotyping I can imagine. Um, he also wrote uh, <laughs> about uh, Americans in the West. He wrote about um, a Chinese legend with Torindo. Um Composers do this all the time. Great composers. Verdi did it, of course. Um, what about cultural appropriation in opera? Oh my god. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I think you need a whole other episode for that. I to I, be honest. I, I, I think we do. <laughs> I think we do. Maybe we'll do the short version. Can you just cuz cuz actually and maybe this will sound like I'm being funny, but I'm not. Um, I think you have a unique perspective on it as a Canadian because I think Canadians think about cultural appropriation differently and more. Than we in America. That's very do. generous. Well, well, in the <laughs> sense that I think you might have to tell us what cultural appropriation is. Oh my goodness! I don't. I'm. I'm not going to at this moment, because I think that there is a lot of responsibility that comes from someone um, defining that for an audience and uh, I can say from my my personal practice it's about cultural appropriation happens when um, you exploit the the story of of an, someone's experience that that you don't have, and you um, you exclude that voice from your process of telling that story. But I'm not even happy with that. I don't know. That's very well said. It's. I think you, what it what it does. What you just said does is reveal the murky waters that that this issue rests in. Because um, what does it mean to to have? It's it's totally not quantifiable, and the problem is arts producers. As we start thinking, well, we need at least two uh, First Nations people if we're going to mm. do a piece, or we need you try to sort of do a math, and well, we have to have a composer of this uh, background and this experience. Mm. We're going to, and of course, it's not quantifiable, and yet we all know in our gut what's authentic. And there and are what's so many not. layers. <laughs> to appropriation, right? When I, and I use the word exploit. Um, exploit is not simply just using something that's not yours. It's, it's about the intention behind that. You know, if, you're, if you are telling someone else's story and it's to your benefit, and really one of the largest considerations here is are you 
making money? And does that mean that the story, um, the people who, who that story belongs to, does that mean they don't get to benefit from telling their story because you've told it? Um, so, and what right do I have to tell that story and benefit from it and take that opportunity away from the person whose story it actually belongs to? Um, by way of example, um, maybe we, we can just quickly go over what happened this summer in Montreal. Uh, uh, many of you may know uh, the director Robert Lepage, a wonderful director. Um, I, I, I'm certainly not, not in love with all of his work, but he did a very beautiful uh, Rake's Progress for La Monet years ago. Uh, and he runs, what's the name of his company, Ex Machina? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uses technology, um, very, I would say, well funded by the Canadian government, by the Canadians, well funded by everyone. They have a lot of money and they do, they do a lot of inventive work. And they were commissioned to make a piece for the Montreal Jazz Festival. Do I have that right? I think the jazz so. Festival, I oh, think I so. can't remember the Which details Which is a now. cool idea because the piece was to deal with uh, slavery and uh, the American slave experience. I'm not sure why they used a Eastern European word. They called it Slav without the E. I'm not sure what the reasoning for that was, but it was about the American slave experience. And I think that that's it's very interesting to put that in a jazz festival and to think about how that influenced um, uh, the codification of, of the jazz style, which then America sent off around the world. That's fascinating. But they had a cast that was, I don't know the numbers, so I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak, but they had a cast that was primarily white. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the larger problem was they had roles like Harriet Tubman, um, played by a white actress. Um, and the reason I mention this is because um, something you taught me over the summer in, in our discussions about this was that um, truth, whatever truth is, changes based on the times that it's living in. So was Puccini writing Madame Butterfly cultural appropriation? Was Mozart writing Abduction from the Seraglio cultural appropriation? But if I were to write a version of the abduction now, that might be. Mm-hmm. That, that actually what is and what is not cultural appropriation changes over time. And I think um, it, there was a great controversy over this Lepage production. It was in the end canceled. And Lepage made some beautiful comments about how um, theater is taking on someone else's experience and becoming better, learning mm-hmm. about their experience by portraying their experience. And I, I can imagine uh, a world in which um, actors from other backgrounds going through the experience of being on stage and playing uh, uh, American slaves could be a cathartic experience, mm-hmm. both for them and for an audience. Um, but it was the wrong time. Absolutely. Um, and as artists, we have a responsibility, would you say, to be um, sensitive to the, the time? Um, or and do we sensitivity exist in a timeless is a, I mean, I think sensitivity is a, is a, is a characteristic um, that 
you know, as an artist, you you either have or you don't. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's something you can cultivate, for sure. I think so. I think we, I have to believe that. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if sensitivity is, is the right word, but I think it's okay to say, it's okay to say making this project or making this work in this way now is just bad practice as an artist. And it's okay to say that work can be bad. Not all art is good art. Um, well, what I liked about the way you first <laughs> said that is that um, it was the practice that was bad. Mm-hmm. And, and actually the quality of the work is kind of irrelevant mm. because the practice is what makes it accessible or inaccessible. And to make a work today about those issues that doesn't give voice to certain community, or as you rightly pointed out, over the summer takes an immense amount of funding and production possibility from other communities yeah. that who are, and should be telling this, yeah. this story authentically. Who are asking and continuously um, wanting to tell their story and not having the opportunity to do so. Uh, certainly not on the same scale of a platform that Lepage has. So, you know, is there, is there a better way to do that for Lepage? I wonder if that... Which inevitably would have made the work, however good the work was, it would have made it better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. We probably should have done this first, but what about you? Tell us about yourself. What about me? Um, why I I, sh- I always start with this, and I'm doing it last with you. Why opera? <laughs> why opera? We jumped right into I hate opera, but, but let's go back <laughs> a step and say why opera. Well, no, this is a nice way to to bring it bring it back bring it back to some uh, some levity. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I mean. First and foremost, uh, very early on in my life, I identified as a musician. And so opera was a very uh, uh, innate uh, art form for me to be curious about and to be diving into and and working through. And uh, ultimately, I realized what I crave more than anything is telling stories and not just telling stories but also hearing stories and understanding stories and and um, being able to to share them and to to build connections between my experiences and the experiences of others so opera does that in a magnificent way because it really brings together so many forms of storytelling into this magnificent beast of an art form as I've already called it Um, and the possibilities are almost endless Um, so it's a fantastic place to get to uh, situate myself as an artist to to say that I'm making opera actually should tear down uh, a lot of the restrictions that can be applied by genre or form or structure or process um, and 
this conversation of why I hate opera uh, is actually born out of that, the opposite, feeling like actually when I work in opera, I'm becoming more and more aware of what the restrictions are supposed to be. Um, and I don't think that they're real. I don't actually think those restrictions have anything to do with the art form. They actually just have to do with tradition and um, this codification that you talk about in, in how we teach artists what opera is. Um, and audiences. And audiences. Um, and they're not uh, ways that I choose to make my opera anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you spent a long time working, and you still work, um, quite deeply in spoken theater. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and in a strange way, I think that actually, over the years, more and more have influenced deeply how I feel now about opera, because most of my work in theater, almost all of my work in theater, has been in new play development. And... Uh, it's a very exciting place because you get to you get to imagine out of nothing what a story could be. And in opera, a lot of times that process feels like the reverse. It feels like the story, the experience is already so cemented. There are already so many expectations in what a production of a particular piece should be. And you kind of have to work backwards from that, almost like, you know, if, do you do you choose to go with that idea or do you choose to go against that idea? And that just seems like such a uh, prohibitive place to start as an artist. Um, whereas in new play development, it's it's the complete opposite. And, and I love that experience. And so more and more, I'm trying to bring those two to a meeting place that is happy for me. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think you said that really, really beautifully, that we're, um, the way we make opera is so inorganic, because it starts with the end, and then works backwards, and then on top of that, you have all the pressures of, of, um, financial pressures and logistical pressures, and also just, we think it's, this is the way it has to be done, because it's always been done this way, mm -hmm. we don't produce it in a way that is organic to creative spirit. And I will say the the crux of that is that, you know, I think we think that way because we uh, we rely on our audiences to know the repertoire. And so you, you start to work assuming that they know the repertoire and that they have these expectations. Um, and then you wonder why nobody is going to the opera. Yeah, why aren't we getting new audiences? <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> So it's just a, a very, uh, you know, layered battleground of, of tactics. <laughs> what, um, what are you working on now? Um, I'm producing a new trilogy called The Empire, and it's written by a, a female playwright. Her name is Susanna Fournier, and it's a trilogy of modern epics it's um, really great for uh, those who who are into this this genre of, of fantastical universes. Um, because oh, I have to say, because <clears throat> I'm very much not into that. Yeah. But um, I'm I I mean I don't even you've described it so much to me I don't even think about it like that anymore. Oh, I mean yeah. it doesn't feel like it's you need to be into that. To, right. To, find find uh, interest in it 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is, but it is an access point. It sounds operatic, uh, to be honest. It is. It's epic. It's, uh, it's a story that spans uh, 500 years of imagined history following um, a, an imperial society. And we, f- we actually land in the first play um, at, the, at the brink of a revolution. And then we actually follow that regime change and the ramifications um, that that has on the population over 500 years. Um, and Susanna's done this incredible work with building this universe that is completely fictional. Uh, it's not referencing a specific empire or a specific nation or specific place. Um, but the beauty of it is that you can absolutely see how it's not unlike any place in the world. Um, and it really spoke to me when I read it because you know, I'm particularly very interested in, in as I said, you know, connecting my experience and understanding the experiences of others and intercultural work. And I really feel like these plays can be set and performed and produced anywhere and have such immediacy um, in the story. It's, it's talking about power dynamics between genders, it's talking about um, militarization, um, capitalism, it's certainly, you know, it's called the empire, it's certainly talking about imperialism. <laughs> Sounds like the ring cycle. <laughs> um, with less, with fewer, I would say, uh, mythological species <laughs> <laughs> no ladies arriving on winged horses <laughs> no not and by this time next year it'll be all produced. yeah we'll have seen all three on stage yeah parts one and two will be premiering in toronto um in december and january they're back to back the first play is called the philosopher's wife the second play is called the scavenger's daughter and then in june of 2019, uh, we'll be presenting the final installment called Four Sisters. It's a cast of 10 women um, in association with the Illuminato Festival in Toronto. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, it's a big project, and we've, we've started to dive right in. We start rehearsals pretty soon. Um, speaking of the project and podcasts, uh, we actually have released the first play as a series of podcasts. If you go to empiretrilogy.com, you can actually hear the first play, The Philosopher's Wife, and uh, we'll be releasing the second play very soon. So for those of you who can't make it to Toronto, you can still hear uh, and experience the plays uh, online. And with any luck, it'll be, it'll be touring yeah. eventually, and people will get to see it. At least to D.C. I feel like it'd be a really great piece for D.C. We we have a lot to say about Empire in D.C., (laughs) or we should anyway. (laughs) Well, Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a wonderful, wonderful treat. I'm sorry we couldn't talk about Verity. You'll see it tonight. I can't wait. By the time this airs, you will have seen it. (laughs) Yes, I'm so excited. Um, And we will look forward to having you back maybe next, next year when you will have started commissioning the opera of the of the trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, next step. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Our interview with Allison was recorded last week, and by this time we have 
completed our run of Viva Verdi, The Promised End. It was a huge success. Uh, I'm deeply proud of the artists that were involved and also the, you, our audiences, for taking, taking the risk to listen in a new way. Uh, we're really pleased with the success, but there's no rest for the weary. And last night we began work on the next show, Figaro in Four Quartets, which opens October 20th at Gala Hispanic Theater. Now we have our director's salon. That's October the 9th at Room and Board on 14th Street, right across from our offices at The Source. It's going to be on the rooftop terrace, and I'm really excited about our panel of guests. I'll be joining the panel this time, not moderating. I'll be talking about Mozart and the classical style. Uh, we'll also have Mark McMorris, who's a wonderful DC poet, teaches at Georgetown University, uh, studies poetics, and is a poet himself. Uh, and he'll be talking about the poetic experience and how he uses time and memory in poetry. And finally, Dr. Joseph Serene, who's uh, emeritus professor from Georgetown University, a physicist um, who, who works with quantum mechanics and the subjectivity of time and the experience of time. Um, it should be a fascinating evening. Our artists will be with us this time, and we'll have a rare array of performances from the from the work, and then we're setting up a, a, a meal afterwards, where people that come can can then come to a restaurant together, and we can all we can all join together in in dinner. Uh, again, that's October 9th uh, at 7 p.m. at Room and Board on 14th Street. Um, I hope to see you all at Figaro and Four Quartets. It's going to be a great experience. My next podcast, I'll I'll talk about that and T. S. Eliot and all things artistic in that process. Um, until then, as you know, Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the first and primary act of making art, and each of us every day can go out into the world and make it a better place through civility. Stay tuned for more from the In Series. You can check us out online, uh, inseries.org, Facebook backslash inseries. You can also go to my blog, is5, and finally, uh, subscribe to the podcast in tune. See you at the opera. <laughs>